Hey everyone, big news. Up Next in Commerce is now available for sponsorship. If you love this show and you, or maybe your company, or someone in your network that you know may want to reach an audience of supremely smart e-commerce leaders, then reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org and I'll give you all the juicy details around what our strategic partnerships look like. Email me at stephanie at mission.org and let's chat. Welcome to Up Next in Commerce, the show that takes you to the front lines of what's happening in digital, retail, and beyond, with conversations from fast-growing startups to the Fortune 500 and everything in between. You'll get a glimpse into what's next. I'm your host, Stephanie Postles, the co-founder and CEO of Mission.org, and I'll be your guide through all the trends, innovations, and hot topics in the world of commerce. After building brands, teams, and customer bases at companies like City Search, Ticketmaster, and Saatchi Art, Sean Mority was the perfect person to lead Leaf Group as it amassed its portfolio of top digital brands. On today's episode, Sean discusses some of the lessons he's learned about assembling a high-performing team and divulges how he's helping Leaf Group's brands experiment in an evolving digital world while still keeping a focus on the tried and true foundational metrics that will help keep a brand around for the long term. Plus, he even gave me some tips on where to start with my novice art collection. Enjoy today's episode. What are business leaders thinking about when they aren't winning at business? Family, travel, the latest TV show? Yes, yes, and maybe. But how about quirky business opportunities or little discussed financial trends or maybe even plant medicine benefits and alternative wellness? Mission Daily is back, baby, and our flagship podcast is better than ever. Mission Daily is the podcast for the business builder, the thoughtful marketer, the team manager, the blue-collar worker looking for new ways to think about life, finances, and health. This is for the people who want to break the status quo and laugh a little or a lot along the way. Join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we address the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about but don't often talk about. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. Sean, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, so we're about to go on a journey. We're getting in our Wayback Machine, and we're going back to 1997. I want to hear where you were and what you were doing. Sure. All right. Well, that's, gosh, that's a quarter century. So we're going pretty far back in the Wayback Machine. At that time, I had just started working at City Search, which was an early digital city guide. And uh, that was in Pasadena, California. I, you know, was just a bit out of grad school and super excited to kind of go on a journey on, you know, what became the consumer internet, you know, started my, my career as uh, a QA engineer and, you know, moved really through the product and tech ranks into general management, but was really, really fortunate to be at the very beginning of, of something, you know, so powerful and profound and to get to go on that ride. Mm -hmm. Is it accurate to say this was like one of the first search engines? Yeah, so so we were more of a, a you know city search was probably less of an engine and more of a searchable city guide. Mm -hmm. Think about every business listing in the local market, but really high quality content written, particularly 
in the arts and entertainment category, but lots of information so people could better explore the places they lived in, their places they wanted to go, but also a platform for small businesses to put their you know best foot forward online at a time when most people didn't even know what that meant. Mm-hmm. When I was looking at the company a bit more, because I had not really heard too much about it, and when I was looking at the history, it kind of reminded me of PayPal Mafia in a way, where it had all these people that went on to do amazing things. And to me, City Search also had all these amazing early team members who went on to do amazing things. I was looking, I think the co-founder of Peloton was there, the former president of Disney Interactive was there, and who was the other one? Uh, the person who ran OpenTable, like some big hitters there. What was it like working with people like that? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mean, you know, when you look back, it was, I guess, a lightning strike of sorts because you work with all of these incredible people at the very beginning also of your career. And, and a lot of companies just aren't like that. You know, we're a pretty young group, but, 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 but a super capable uh, group of people. We got, again, I think being at the beginning of something is really, really valuable because it does create a very level playing field. If you're hardworking and you're smart and you're at the beginning of an industry, it does create a lot of opportunity for, for people young in their careers to learn very quickly and succeed. If there's a really high talent density at that start, even more so the case. But yeah, I mean, you really hit on it. John Pleasance, Tom Stockham, Charles Kahn, the founder of City Search, just really, really smart, capable, talented people. John Foley went on to do Peloton. Tim Sullivan went on to run Match.com and then Ancestry. Selena Tabakawala joined us when we acquired Evite not too long after that. And so just this, you know, really, really high caliber group of people, not just professionally and smart, but but really, really good people. You know, and it's a blessing to have, you know, that earlier in your career. Yeah. Where are the stories around that? So I'm like, why aren't there more of these? Like I said, there's so much around the PayPal mafia where they all went like, why aren't there more around the city search mafia? Yeah. You know, I, I think we live in a world that changes so fast and there's always something new and fresh and fascinating. But I think it was all, also speaks to a couple of things. One is geography, right? So the company is based, you know, in Los Angeles, and many of the, the the core group of us. I'm one of the few who actually remained in LA. People, you know, spread as you know the, with the rise of the consumer internet. A lot of the action kind of moved, you know, to Northern California, and then the next best opportunity in many cases for some folks was in Northern California or in New York or. You know, in the case of uh, of Ancestry, two CEOs out of City Search, first Tom Stockham and then Tim Sullivan, was in Salt Lake City. And so I think there's a bit of, of a diaspora, but I also think that it tended to be a pretty, I would say, confident and capable group of people. But he goes pretty much, you know, in check, and you know, people who don't necessarily advertise a lot, but were highly competent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the best ones who need more stories told about them. So after City Search, where did you go next? So shortly before we took City Search public back in, I guess, December of 98, we had acquired Ticketmaster.com, which was a fledgling you know, online business that had the exclusive and perpetual right to sell all Ticketmaster tickets on the internet. And we took that combined company public. And uh, I became fascinated over the course of the next year or so with the Ticketmaster business, the ticketing business overall, but particularly the online part of it, because it felt like a natural to move online. Um, you know, certainly many other people saw that and saw that even before I did. You know, coming up the product and technology side, being able to build Ticketmaster.com into a dominant distribution channel online 
was just a really, really exciting thing. It presented for, you know, for someone who was building products and platforms, a really interesting set of challenges, right? You're selling scarce, perishable inventory um, that's vastly oversubscribed online. The technical challenges are significant. The stakes are high because you're doing that on behalf of, of your clients. I ended up, you know, spending the next, you know, 10 years of my life working with a team and building that Ticketmaster business first on the product and technology side. And then that's what really moved me into general management. But I was just fascinated by, you know, building a platform that, you know, connected audiences to what they cared about most in entertainment and doing that on behalf of professional sports teams and Broadway show producers and rock bands, you know, so it was really, really visible, intense and exciting for me. Yeah. What did you learn when it came to building up a team, especially now as you're kind of moving through where you're at today? I mean, what kind of lessons do you take with you from those earlier times? Yeah. I, th I think what was great about that business for me early in my career was really that it was a, at its core, a technology-driven client service business, right? So, you know, Ticketmaster, Ticket, we're an agent on behalf of a principal and your technology needs to work on behalf of your client or it creates real problems. You know, you're selling tickets, which are really, really expensive. They're very, very scarce, and you're doing it super quickly. And so you learn a few things. One, it's a business where you're always on. Two, your homework gets graded every single day, because if you screw it up, you're screwed up, not on behalf of yourself, what you are, but it directly impacts a client who is absolutely and should be keeping score. I think that level of kind of oversight and scrutiny and high expectation really helped imprint the importance of having very high standards for quality, you know, early in the career. The other thing is the business never stopped, right? So you're selling tickets on behalf of thousands of clients in dozens of countries, and something is always going on. So it's operationally intense. You're always on, and your time is not your own. And so you start to learn how to build teams that can deliver that level of service, which means you have to start looking into people's personalities, right? Which is, you know, when you're building teams, okay, this is what the mission is. Are we identifying people who are comfortable in effectively an always on world? How are they going to feel when they're releasing code in an environment, which is going to determine whether we do a good job of selling tickets to the Yankees in the World Series or for a U2 tour, and that code blows up? you start really understanding the importance of temperament and personality as well as skills. And then the interplay of those personalities on a team, again, because you know that there's a very, very high pressure environment as well, just by the very nature of the business. I would say those are some of the, the, you know, the biggest lessons. The other thing that was, I think, really valuable is getting it right. Facebook kind of popularized the, the notion, move fast and break things. And, you know, I think if you're a content site on the consumer internet, you know, that's okay, but it's not always true. You know, when you're dealing with millions of dollars worth of other people's inventory, breaking things really is not on the table. You need to move quickly because, you know, they want their business to evolve extremely quickly and you effectively through the delivery of technology enable that, but you can't break their business along the way. And so balancing speed and responsiveness to clients with being able to deliver consistently in a way that's not going to damage someone's business. You know, again, it goes back to, you know, really developing those, those kind of standards of excellence. 
Hmm. And so you were at Ticketmaster for eight-ish years or so, right? And then you were the CEO for five? Yeah. So I started getting involved in the business fairly heavily, I think probably in late 98, early 99, if memory serves correctly. And then I took over the Ticketmaster.com business, I think, you know, in 01. But again, I ran product and technology for all of Ticketmaster through 04, became the COO in 04, and then from 2005 to 2009, ran the business. Okay. And so at what point did you start getting a little antsy and you were like, it's, I'm ready for my new thing? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I wasn't, uh, I, I really, really, you know, enjoyed the job and wasn't necessarily looking for the next thing. You know, love the team, love what we were doing. But, you know, the, we had spun the business out as a public company back in August of 2008, right around the time when, you know, the, the, the world melted. I think, you know, Lehman and, and Bear Stearns failed, you know, kind of within weeks. So it was a tough time being, you know, out in the public markets. And the board had made the, you know, the decision to combine Ticketmaster with Live Nation, kind of a vertically integrated live entertainment company, and, you know, had decided that they wanted someone other than me, Michael Rapino, who's still running the combined business today, to run that business and run it, I would say, probably entertainment and, and promotions first. So it was a natural time, you know, for me to, you know, to move on. Got it. Okay. So where was your next stop? Yeah. So, so for the next couple of years, I had a, a, a young family at the time, and I'd been on the road a ton from 2005 to 2009. And uh, my wife and I had our, our first child in 06, and then another one in, in, in 2010. And you know, I knew I wanted to go back to an operating role, uh, but I did a, quite a bit of board work actually at the time. I, you know, in that interim period before I went back into a full-time operating role, uh, I was the chairman of two LA-based tech companies: one MetaCloud, uh, which was private cloud as a service, which we sold to to Cisco, um, and the other one was Triton Digital, which a platform technology provider for the at the time the terrestrial radio business as it moved online. And then I also did a stint as an EIR up at Mayfield Fund in Silicon Valley. Uh, and I did that probably for about three years, three and a half, uh, before I took the Saatchi Art CEO role back in 2013. Okay. Tell me a bit about Saatchi Art. Yeah. So, you know, I knew I wanted to go back into an operating role. I had looked at a bunch of things, but I, you know, was fascinated by the fine art category, both from a standpoint of personal interest in the category, uh, I should say the category. I mean, you know, I, I'm an art lover, and so as a professional, you know, it was one of those categories that had, you know, kind of really stubbornly resisted moving online. And you know, I've had the view, you know, since the mid '90s that the internet is kind of the way of all things uh, when it comes to commerce and content. How long it takes, it's an important detail, but a detail nonetheless. And so when I looked at the category and I looked at the Saatchi art business and this, this is really interesting. Artists can, from a commercial perspective, have a pretty difficult lot in life. And the average person, unless they are particularly, you know, kind of motivated, doesn't really have the means to fall in love with art or artists. And it's substantially an access education and information problem. And the internet can be great at bridging those gaps. And, you know, I saw a platform that had I, you know, tens of thousands of emerging artists from across the globe on it doing extraordinary work and thought, gosh, you know, we could build this into, you know, a really, really good business and then make the world a better place, which I think it's, I would say in some ways it's an internet talking point, but it also can be true, right? The idea that you can build a platform 
that allows artists to make a living while they do what they love. And you can introduce people across the globe to beautiful works that are accessible to them at a wide variety of price points under a brand they can trust. So kind of married the internet, you know, kind of brought all those elements together to lead to a platform that we're very, very excited to have part of Leaf Group today. Mm, Amazing. So for someone like me who is not big into art yet, where would you recommend I start or what's a favorite artist right now that you're following? Oh gosh, you know, there's an awful lot. I think probably the best thing to do is go to Saatchi Art and you really should start with what you go on your journey, starting from what you like Mm -hmm. and grow from there. And, you know, the more you look at, the more art you see, the more, you know, you'll develop or refine your own sense of what you really, really like the most. You know, there, there are thousands of absolutely extraordinary artists on the platform. I think, you know, just going on the site and looking at the collections that our curators put together pretty much every day. One of the things that's amazing about Saatchi Art is every single work of art on the site, our curators have actually looked at. So while it's an open platform, any artist can go on, create an account and upload their works. Those works are looked at by professional curators who make sure that they're properly classified, that the imagery is of high quality, it's going to look good online. That creates a very, very good experience you know, for the customer. Yeah, I was just browsing through the best of 2022, which to me was the best place to start. And I already saw some very cool pieces and nice knowing kind of how, yeah, it's filtered in a way and curated and has the stamp of approval to make sure it looks good. So Yeah. And if you go onto, uh, onto the site or on, onto YouTube and you look at the Saatchi Art channel, you'll see inside the studio where you know we go in depth with an artist and they're talking about their particular creative process and you know what moves and motivates and inspires them. And you know that can be you know, I think really, really powerful. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So you're at Saatchi and then it gets acquired by Leaf Group? Is that how to think about it? Uh, the predecessor to Leaf Group is Demand Media. So Demand Media was you know, started in the mid-2000s. Digital publisher had really focused on creating long-tail content in a variety of consumer verticals. You know, that business went public in 2011. You know, had, it was really built on long-tail SEO, had some real challenges after going public as a consequence of Google updating their algorithms and focusing on richer, deeper, frankly, higher quality content that demand media had. And so the business, you know, was was struggling a bit. At the same time, you know, the team had started to diversify the, the portfolio there. CEO at the time had reached out to me and said, hey, we really like the, the Saatchi Art business. Uh, we'd like to talk to you about it. They had just acquired a business called Society Six, which is, you know, our, our largest business by revenue today, also an artist-powered marketplace, um, you know, in the home decor category. And, um, you know, those, you know, conversations led to the acquisition by then demand media of the Saatchi art business and me taking the CEO role of the combined company. And the impetus for that deal, from my perspective, uh, why it was a good thing for Saatchi is one of the things I realized in the kind of year or so I was running Saatchi art is that, well, a very good business and the type of business that should grow for a very, very long time at a healthy clip, because it's, you know, you're you know, you're selling fine art, painting, drawing, sculpture, mixed media at relatively high price points. One, that's a behavior that, you know, is really still just growing online and people are getting comfortable with it. And two, it has very high average order values that you can't really bend the curve with kind of the conventional venture capital, pour a lot of dollars on top, bend the customer acquisition curve, and presto, in three or four years, you have a business. But I kind of looked and said, inside a broader portfolio with patient capital, 
The business has very good unit economics. It can grow for a very, very long time, and it fits within what demand is trying to do. And so I guess eight years later, here we are. Wow. Okay. So for anyone who does not know what Leaf Group is, can you give a high level of what the company is and kind of how it works? Yeah. So Leaf Group, you know, kind of in, in simplest terms, it's, uh, you know, a diversified consumer internet company. Uh, we own and operate brands that connect consumers to what they're most passionate about in life. And the categories, you know, we focus on are uh, primarily, but not exclusively at this point in time, art and design and fitness and wellness. We, in the art and design category, we own uh, Saatchi Art, Society6, Hunker, and Fitness and Wellness. We own Well and Good and Livestrong.com, and we own several other brands. We will build brands internally from nothing like we did with Hunker. We will acquire businesses like Well and Good, which is one of the largest uh, wellness sites on the internet. Uh, we acquired that business back in 2018. But really, we want to build brands that consumers love and trust in high passion categories where we feel there's an unmet need or there's a big consumer segment that really hasn't been served terribly well that, that we think we can serve well. There's a stereotype of the average American worker whose life goes something like this. Go to work, come home, consume some kind of entertainment, go to sleep, lather, rinse, repeat. If you're listening to this ad, then I know that that life does not resonate with you. For the truly disruptive business leader, work doesn't stay at the office, and unwinding doesn't mean watching TV at night every single night. This is why we've created Mission Daily, a podcast that discusses the trends, habits, and ideas that thoughtful business people are contemplating every day. From quirky business opportunities to interesting investment ideas to the latest research in health and exercise and alternative medicine, and maybe even plant medicine, who knows where we're going to go, but Mission Daily covers it all. We're releasing new episodes every weekday. So join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we discuss the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about, but don't talk about, publicly, that is. Break the status quo. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. It's so fascinating thinking about just the transition of this company, starting out as this, you know, like you said, SEO kind of content engine to then realizing mm, maybe that could be like a race to the bottom. How do we actually get into the commerce space? And I think, you know, everyone kept saying every media company is a commerce company and every commerce company is trying to be a media company. Like, how did you make that shift though? Like when it comes to maybe the internal culture and the employees, I mean, it just, it seems so hard transitioning like that, but it looks so easy looking at where the company's at today. Yeah, I guess, you know, it always looks a little easier, go, look, you know, looking backwards. Um, but I think you can do an awful lot you know, with with hard work moving forward in the passage of time. I mean, it's a little simplistic. You have to have, well, what direction do we want to go in and why do we want to go there? You know, my view from the beginning, which which is the same today, is realistically speaking, you know, for, for any business, you know, what you're seeking to do is provide a product or a service to a customer, typically, you know, within a category. And so people talk a lot in consumer internet lands about, uh, you know, the method of monetization, right? Are, you know, are you ad supported, subscription revenue, commerce, as if being one of those things kind of fundamentally at your core defines what you are as a business. And I, I kind of view that a little differently, which is when you think about providing a product or service to a customer base willing to pay for it, what you're always trying to do is align on, well, if we're going to provide this product or service, What's the right exchange of value for it? 
right? And in some cases, the best way to get that that fair exchange of value is with an ad supported model, right? You know, the tried and true model for content creators forever, almost regardless of medium, has been, hey, you know, if this content has mass appeal, then there are going to be many advertisers who would like to get in front of that audience within that context, and they're going to pay you for it. And you're going to get much more consumption of a mass audience if it is, in fact, free for them to consume, and the advertisers will pay the freight. If it's specialized content or super premium, i.e. really, really expensive to produce and coveted by people who are willing to pay for it, that lends itself to a subscription model. And then there are cases, of course, where people are clearly looking to purchase. They want brand trust and they want selection and they want price and they want, you know, in some cases, it's timely delivery and lowest price. In other cases, they want really highly curated assortment of the best goods available. And so, you know, it all starts with what are we trying to do, right? A method of monetization should follow that, right? And over time, you know, I think on the internet, you have the ability to diversify uh, the way you make money based on the various ways you're providing value to the people that you serve. I think, look, you know, Amazon has done a, an extraordinary job of this, right? It really started as, you know, as an online retailer within a single category. And if you look at the way Amazon is getting paid today, you've got marketplace, you've got retail, you've got cloud service. And I think they've earned that right because every time they extend value to a customer, right, they are able to say, all right, well, what's the right way for this? People who are, are high-frequency customers who want reduced shipping costs become prime customers. And then they ratchet up what they're providing to that prime customer over time. But I would say what they do a, a really, really good job of is constantly figuring out what is the most aligned way for that exchange of value for the particular product or service they're offering. And I think, you know, that that can and should be true of every brand. Yep. Yeah, completely agree. Do you think right now there's a big opportunity in the market to have more brands come into kind of like a leaf group, like a portfolio of brands where you can learn from each other and maybe not be, you know, forced by investors to grow on, you know, at unreasonable rates or try and return their fund or whatever it may be? Like, do you think it's advantageous to be more of this like portfolio of brands within a holding group? Um, I, I think it can be if it's well executed. Yeah. I mean, there are really, really good businesses that are not going to grow, you know, at the rate that, you know, venture uh, investors are interested in. And there are also businesses that are very, very good businesses that aren't going to be big enough for private equity to want to acquire. And yet, if they can, you know, grow kind of in the low to mid double digits for very long periods of time with healthy unit economics and get kind of what I would, you know, kind of the care and feeding they need, right? Do they get access to best practices? Um, you know, the things that they need to do in order to be successful kind of from a, from a back office perspective, can that be provided to them at, you know, at a lower cost than they would if they were independent? Do they have access to talent from the broader organization that can make each business a bit stronger than it would be if it was on its own. I mean, I think IAC, you know, which was the owner of, of, of Ticketmaster and where I spent an awful lot of time, has done an extraordinary job of this. What do you see them doing at Ticketmaster? And are you taking any of their initial concepts and kind of have brought it over to the Leaf Group? 
You know, I think it's it's interesting. I, you know, there's there's kind of nothing new under the sun, right, in business mm-hmm. really or in life. But when you observe people doing something particularly well, I think it validates the concept. So then the question is, is okay, well, if we would like to have similar success, what do we need to do in order to make that happen? By the way, as you know, there there are multiple brands that are sitting in corporations that focus exclusively, you know, on quick service food, right? Mm-hmm. Restaurants. Yeah. There are businesses that only own luxury fashion, right? And they're some of the biggest, most valuable companies on the planet. So, so again, this is not a new concept. What are the ingredients for success? I would say a handful of things. One, having a pretty good understanding, a very good understanding of your circle of competence. What are the categories we know well and we think we're equipped to, to succeed in? Um, becoming a good allocator of capital against opportunities, right? The idea, you know, you may say, hey, this category is ripe um, for opportunity, but we don't know a whole heck of a lot about it. And we think it's really capital intense. So that may not be for us. You know, being able to bring in very, very talented people in one business, but having an environment that is dynamic so that people can stay with us for three, five, seven, ten years if they have the desire and the aptitude and being able to offer them opportunities that they might not get within a single business, you know, of similar size. You know, I think you got to commit yourself to doing the things well that make that, you know, that branded business diversity in a portfolio greater than, you know, some of the, the you know, not necessarily the friction, but the complexity uh, can create. So in this environment today, what are you learning between brands that you're able to kind of share yeah, across all the brands and lift them up together. Are there any commonalities right now that are maybe newer to this environment we're in? You know, that, that's a great question. I, I think that, you know, the areas I, where I'd say we gain the most benefit, I think the advantage we get is the feedback loop. Mm-hmm. You know, because we get to see things from multiple different places, I think that actually helps us. But, you know, what are we very, very knowledgeable about based on where we sit? So, you know, people have been talking about the death of email forever, but email is an incredibly important channel still for commerce and for content, right? You know, a newsletter with high open rates and high engagement is really, really valuable. Understanding those best practices so that you can provide a great experience across your portfolio of businesses matters an awful lot. SEO still matters an awful lot. Experimentation within new channels uh, matters. You know, across businesses, if you have good, smart people, you know, every business is going to move at a bit of a different pace in terms of their experimentation or their execution in various distribution channels. The beauty is if someone is having early success on Instagram, they can share that internally very quickly. And so the best practice sharing in a world that's changing really quickly can become good, solid competitive advantage. Also, the benchmarking that comes from that. Okay, this team is excellent at commerce SEO. Well, that means we should be excellent across the organization as quickly as we can. We should have really good closing speed at replicating areas of excellence inside the company. How do you make sure that the brands don't all start doing exactly the same thing? Like, how do you keep them experimenting in what they're best at? And then, you know, maybe saying this is our new benchmark and this is what everyone should be doing without mm-hmm. all of a sudden looking and being like, oh, all, all my brands now are doing exactly the same thing. And there is no experimentation because they just are circling the same knowledge. I think if you're you know, hiring capable people who want to function with a high degree of autonomy, I think the problem kind of solves itself because, mm-hmm. you know, they, they like their independence and in executing their business. And we certainly encourage that. But, you know, really, really strong leaders 
also want to learn and steal from their colleagues, right? Kind of in the most positive of ways to say, hey, if it's working great for you, I want to find out about that. So then the question is, you know, what type of lightweight framework that you can set up that isn't some sort of forced synergy, which I think is kind of the death knell of uh, moving quickly and smartly, um, but it creates a natural exchange of information rather than relying on, well, gosh, I hope everybody see- takes the initiative to find out what their colleague in a sister business is working on that could be helpful to them. And you know, we do that internally through regular product meetings, right? So we, you know, we on a, a pretty regular basis will get people together for you know probably half a day, and they're going to walk through from a standpoint of again we 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 look at it really through the lens of the customer experience. What are we building by way of product and service, and how is it working? And that could be anything from is a social media integration to an, you know a new approach to SEO to talking about podcast marketing and what it's actually done to engagement on platform. And so when you're focusing on the things that matter most to the business operators where they're having real success or real challenge, it creates, you know, a, that coming together for best practice sharing that works pretty well for us. And then over time, you know, people start to develop real relationships with one another and what you hope is the meeting itself, which again is, you know, it's probably every other month and it's half a day is really the catalyst for ongoing interactions about, hey, what's working really well for you now? Or I've got this really sticky problem around conversion. What have you guys tried that works or what are you hearing out there? So tell me about some of the personalities on your team. I mean, I'm just imagining you've got these companies you're acquiring, so you have the founders and you're probably bringing in subject matter experts. Like what, what does the team look like? Yeah, um, you know, so when you're thinking about building teams, for diverse businesses, I think you have to have a you know be pretty comfortable with you know a wide range of personalities mm-hmm. you know and experiences. And I, by the way, I think that's healthy for single brand, single line businesses too, but particularly so in our world. But at the same time, you know you're looking for common traits uh, just based on you know the type of company we are and, and the culture we have and. I would say you know a few things jump to mind, which is you know we're still a pretty small business. There's I think about 400 of us across you know our brands, and 400 um, sounds pretty mighty to me. But carry on. <laughs> we all do work, so the player coach model mm-hmm. works. You know, like the idea of someone who does wonderful presentations and great powerpoints, and that's kind of it. That doesn't it really work terribly well inside a Leaf Group. You know we want strategic doers. In much of what we do, we want people who are highly confident, but uh, also very, very comfortable and low ego. You know, I, I want enough ego where people are very, very confident in their abilities, but not so much that they suck the energy out of the room. We're pretty scrappy and we run lean. Not a great place for, I would say, politicians or bureaucrats. And you know, one of the things that we always try to look for in our leaders is desire or willingness to help. Right, which is not just within the team. But you know, having some capacity for selflessness and being other directed, it's hard to get best practice sharing, do a lot with a little in a world where people are primarily focused only on what's directly in front of them. Right? I'm a huge believer in the team approach, and for th- teams to really thrive, 
people have to have you know that gene which says i am willing to to give something more of myself than perhaps left to my own devices i would because i want to help my team out like i'll go the extra mile for my team i will pick up the slack of someone else because that's who i am i think you can stress the importance of it but the capacity to be willing to help someone else out of the team to fight through tough times I, I think that's very much of a personality type. Yeah. How are you testing for that in the interview process? I mean, all those, I'm like, yes, yes, yes. I want to hire candidates just like that. But how are you going about filtering for those kinds of people? Yeah, I, I think it's a lot of a lot of it comes to the conversation you're having with people in that process, you know, about their personal journey and about their story. What have been the most formative moments of their life? Who are the people that they're closest to and why? What was the most challenging situation that they've been in? And, you know, from that, you know, again, it's interesting, the people who, you know, when people talk about who's had the most impact in their life and why, you tend to get a sense for what moves and motivates them as a human being. What are the traits they most admire, you know, in others? I like that. So it's literally learning about the person. Who knew? Yeah. You know, because it's interesting when, uh, when I was at Ticketmaster, we, at one point I had responsibility over you know, our call centers. And we had really, really strong leaders, uh, Scott Powell and Sandy Gar, who ran the businesses directly. And one of the things that was always very interesting to me is, you know, if you kind of went beyond the tools and the background and the experience set, and you looked at who are the people most successful in the role, there are people who genuinely enjoyed helping other people. So if they have the basic skills and the drive, and you're giving them good tools to work with, the differentiator was attitude, right? Which is, if you're someone who is really, really excited to help someone else out, you're going to be a phenomenal asset as a customer service person. If that doesn't excite you and you're just functionally competent at it, that level of differentiation that separates good from great is never going to be there. Mm -hmm. And I think that does tend to come out in, you know, in people's stories. I mean, it's fairly easy to screen for, you know, talent, uh, for, you know, for, for kind of smarts and motivation and everything else. But when it comes down to those intangibles that result in a great team, I think probably, you know, deep interviewing a personal story to get what motivates people to see if that, what motivates people in their own lives is consistent with what you think drives success in your organization. Yeah, that's great. So I want to hear your thoughts on the future right now. Like, where do you think things are headed? Or do you have any contrarian opinions that others disagree with you on, or maybe your team members don't even agree with you on? Like, where do you think this ship is headed? Yeah, well, this is an interesting time to ask that question, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, we, you know, have had this incredible bull market run that's lasted, you know, basically, you know, a, slightly more than a decade. And so the big question is, you know, are we headed into a recession? What's the likelihood of that? How deep is I it? I think we're in be? it technically, right? And yeah, it was, you know, I, I think we are. If you go by the definitions, like two down quarters or something. And people can argue around the edges of the definition, but but there's also a lot of conflicting things out there, right? Which is, you know, I think it's still a substantially, broadly speaking, competitive job market. People still have an awful lot of money saved. Inflation is real and can take you backwards very, very quickly. How much of this is transitory as a consequence of hot money and the supply chain? And how much is it, you know, will this be a long hangover? I, you know, people can have their theories, but I don't think people really know. 
you know, and so I, and I, and I think the, you know, the shock of the pandemic in every meaning of the word shock is very, very real. And the recovery is going to take time. And I think it's going to be very, very unpredictable. That said, the world is awash in capital. I think there's extraordinary innovation that is going to continue to come. Like technology doesn't stop moving merely because we go into a recession. And innovation, in many ways, in recessionary environments or when some of the, you know, the best companies are created, I think the world, in some cases, slows down. The allocation of capital gets more disciplined, and there's less frivolous stuff going on. And so I think we will kind of soldier through the, the next couple of years. My, my own personal view is, yeah, we're probably more likely than not that we're in a mild recession over the course of the next 12 to 18 months. And businesses that have been heavily capitalized and you know consuming a lot of capital are not going to be able to do that you know in our sector in the way that they were. But the opportunities again for innovation, new company formation, building new businesses that materially make people's lives better, like that that hasn't changed one bit, right? We what ends up happening is this the foundation that we build upon keeps getting stronger and more robust and great entrepreneurs come along and they take advantage of things that didn't exist even a few years earlier right and and you know and so so that cycle will will continue the other thing that will tend to happen is kind of the best companies will be able to uh, make huge inroads in terms of competitive advantage because they will be able to consolidate more of the talent that's out there. The talent can get really diffuse in these really, really hot markets where there's tons of new opportunity on every corner and can make real progress. Is there anything at the Leaf Group that you guys are doing specifically? Are you focused on margins? Are you maybe pausing on acquiring new companies or launching new ones on your own? Like, How are you kind of prepping for the next couple of years? Yeah, I, I think Herb Keller at Southwest Airlines used to talk about you know, you should always manage your company mostly the same in good times and in bad. And I think that precept, you know, holds true. But I think you need to be more disciplined and more focused in times like this. And I'm not saying it's necessarily bad times, but certainly tougher times and more ambiguity. You know, we pulled forward a couple of years of, you know, consumer demand probably in the first year of the pandemic. What does that demand curve look like over the course of the next couple of years? I think probably more than anything, people lack visibility. And so I think, you know, you need to be very disciplined and focused in the short term, but still have conviction around what your long-term plans are. Why does your business and brand exist and what do you want to do with it over time? But certainly be measured and disciplined, uh, you know, as we navigate through, you know, whatever this next period brings to us. But again, you know, when, when I look at our businesses, we've always had a bit of that. We're, you know, we're building this for the long haul, right? I want our brands to be loved and trusted household names 10 years down the road. And so given the realities of today's environment, how do we make sure we're being prudent and disciplined in particular at this time of uncertainty, but still marching towards that ultimate goal of where we want these businesses to be? And I think, you know, you think long-term, but you're calibrating intelligently on the short-term realities. Yeah, you can definitely tell you've had that long-term thinking throughout your career and just kind of hearing how you, you know, were even prepping your first companies and going into Leaf Group and, you know, margins and when it would become a good business. I mean, 
are you able to also think about new technologies when they're like, are you able to kind of explore other areas, maybe NFTs for art or thinking about blockchain or are these things that you're like, let's just wait and see until we get past this? Yeah, you know, we did our, our first NFT drop, uh, the other avatars at the very beginning of this year. And, and we're okay. really, really proud of it. So you're uh, in it. Cool. You know, it was a sellout. We, you know, we're in it. I continue to be fascinated by new technology. And at the same time, you want to say, okay, well, there's a part of me that would love for us to just play around with the new stuff all the time and see where it gets us. For right or wrong, uh, you know, we're kind of where I've evolved on this is you want some willful experimentation, but it should always be driven you know, just by, well, we, let's play around and see if we can find something new here. But you know, go back to what, can we, what might this technology enable us to do for our customers that we couldn't do before? Right, so we look at you know the NFT space, and I am a, a, a believer. Digital art's been around for a long time. The idea that the blockchain could provide provenance and liquidity, and the ability to probably you know to trade to earn uh, artists enduring revenue streams, all of a sudden you say, "Gosh, you know we can do a lot more for the artist and for the collector than we could before." Whether this will hit or not. It's unknown. I'm, I'm a believer that uh, that collectible digital art is real, and over the next ten years, we will see that made manifest. But I could be wrong. But it's very clear that if we're a platform which is about connecting artists and collectors and art lovers to what they care about most, and NFT art is out there, then we should be able to put our best foot forward so that our platform truly serves people in this new area. And but we should seek to do it consistent with what our own ethos is. And for us, curation matters an awful lot. Putting together collections where we've got wonderful artists, they're working against a particular theme. A collector can come and get educated, that can understand you know, this artist's work, the physical work that they've done, um, and go on a journey with us rather than just tossing something out there you know, to feed the temporal excitement of a bunch of speculators. Like, that's just not our thing. Yeah. Well, that's what's interesting about the time period right now is all the buildup around speculation is probably going to go away and outcomes, utility and function and seeing what actually is here for the long term. I'm probably a little bit contrarian in some ways. I guess it can be a lot contrary, but, but this idea, nothing new under the sun. Mm-hmm. Now, people would hear that sometimes at first blush, they say, wait, wait, wait a second. Like, you know, the world is changing all the time and it's sometimes changing in wonderful ways and in some cases, terrible ways. But, but they're truly, if you kind of step back a bit, there is nothing new under the sun. Technology always marches forward. It is able to deliver things that allow people over time to live richer, fuller lives. Sometimes technology innovation takes human existence backwards, right? Whether it's modern weaponry on a battlefield in World War I. That will always be part of the human condition because it's who who we are. And so, you know, what I always try to square is what is fundamental and essential to human nature that today's technology or tomorrow's technology allow us to deliver on because we weren't able to meet something that is a a fundamental human need that technology now makes possible of being met or for the first time or maybe in a better way. Right, trying to balance those things, which is technology is almost a form of magic to the extent that it can fundamentally improve and extend what it means to be human. Oh, 
And that is a great place to end this interview. Sean, thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing what you're up to now and your journey of how you got here. Where can our listeners learn more about Leaf Group and yourself? Sure. So you could certainly go to leafgroup.com and you know, see a whole heck of a lot uh, about our brands. You can also, you know, if you're excited by what you heard about art, go to Saatchi Art and Society6. Again, hundreds of thousands of artists across the globe working on both of those platforms. If you're into fitness and wellness, definitely check out Well and Good and Live Strong. Live Strong probably does more to provide really kind of high quality, fact-based utility content about fitness and nutrition than any other site out there. And then we have a wonderful site that I haven't mentioned called Only in Your State, which people should mm. check out because- I looked that up actually, that looked fascinating. There are wonderful things to do in your own backyard that you probably haven't mm-hmm. thought about or heard about, but Only in Your State covers. And we've got a whole lot more brands inside the portfolio besides that. So definitely come check us out. Stephanie, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Yeah, this is awesome. Thanks, Sean. Thank you. listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.